I am very excited to return to our Through the Bible study tonight. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, or if you just wandered in tonight, uh, our evening service is usually, and that includes tonight, devoted to what we call a Through the Bible study, which means two things. One, that we're just moving right on through the Bible, uh, and so we started in Genesis in January of this year. Uh, and then two, that we, uh, we move through at a pretty speedy clip. Um, We average about three chapters a week, and the goal is to get all the way through Revelation and start again in seven years' time. So that's what we're doing. Tonight we're picking up in the fourth book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, in chapter one. If you didn't bring a Bible tonight, you'll find one stuck in the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, And like I said, Numbers is just four books in, so you should have no problem finding it. A couple of things before we get started. Like Exodus, like Leviticus, like Deuteronomy that follows Numbers, in fact, like Joshua, all of those books, including our book this morning, begins, or this evening, begins with the word and. And I always think that's significant. In the, in the English, you probably can't see that. But in the original Hebrew, all of those books begin with and because they all go together. They make up the first five books is usually referred to as the Pentateuch, the five being the Penta. Uh, or sometimes we refer to the Hexateuch and we include Joshua in there because the story continues okay, in a very significant way. Uh, we cannot really understand the book that we open tonight without seeing it in the context of both Exodus and Leviticus before it, as well as Deuteronomy to follow. Now, the second thing I wanted to mention before we get started is its title. This book is labeled uh, Numbers. Originally, in the Latin, it took a name, Arithmoi, where we get arithmetic. Uh, that's why we call it Numbers today, and the reason is because there's a double census in it. There's a census in the beginning and there's a census at the end. Now, aren't you excited? Uh, uh, But interestingly enough, there are some older and more ancient names for the book that are probably more fitting. And so, for example, we know that rabbis often reference this book uh, using the Hebrew word that's translated wilderness. It's one of the words that's in sentence one here uh, when it says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. And so many rabbis just called this the book of the wilderness. And that actually, as we will see, is a significant title, not just because of the location where these things take place, but also the significance of what happens in the book. Others referred to it in a classic naming tradition to the Hebrews by the first few words of the book, okay? So, in the, for example, Genesis uh, is labeled berith, okay? Because the first word in Genesis is beginning, and so berith is beginning, and so it's the book of berith, okay? In the same way, the opening phrase here is, and the Lord spoke, okay? And so many, many rabbis anciently referred to this book as just the book and the Lord spoke, Okay, just referencing its first quotation. And even that is more significant than it first may sound because it's over 150 times we find in this book that phrase, and the Lord spoke. It's a significant point. In fact, many scholars argue that that phrase often operates as a division in the text between one section and the next. And so it serves structural significance um, as well. Um, So, with that being said, let's go ahead and read verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai 
in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, saying. Now, there's a lot there that would help us to kind of situate this book in its context. And first we see that the book takes place in the wilderness of Sinai. And what's happening here, where it's picking up the story, Israel has been miraculously redeemed, delivered, brought out of slavery in Egypt, brought into the wilderness, and at Mount Sinai, been given a full and total revelation of God's character and covenant known as the law. On top of that, they have been given God's presence in the midst of the tabernacle. But at the end of Exodus, as they finally built this tabernacle, Even Moses himself can't enter into it because God is so holy and because the people are not. And so Leviticus, the intermittent book between Exodus and where we find ourselves in Numbers, is just solving that problem. So we get the priesthood and the sacrifices and the kosher laws and the holiness code and all of these things so that it's possible that a sinful nation might dwell with a holy God who's living in a very significant way in their midst. Okay. But at the end of the book, that problem is solved, but the story of Israel is not over. There's a reason why the book of Numbers needs to exist. Okay. And it's because God made a handful of promises to the Israelites' uh, uh, ancestor, Abraham. Some of them are already experiencing God told Abraham specifically, after hundreds of years, I will bring your people out of a foreign power's influence and bring them to myself. He he had told Abraham, I will greatly multiply your people, and we'll see how significantly that promise has been fulfilled when we get to the census tonight. He also said, though, I will give you the land, Abraham, in which you are dwelling. And that is not the wilderness of Mount Sinai. That is not Egypt, where they came from. That is the land of Canaan, and they're not yet there. Okay? And so they've been given their freedom. They've been given the law. They've become their own people, but they don't have a land. They're not yet a nation, as God has promised, uh, that through the descendants of Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The next phase is traveling to the promised land. Now, unfortunately, the book of Numbers should be 14 chapters long because that's all the time it takes for them to get there. But we'll see things go sideways, and instead of spending a handful of weeks on this travel, they end up spending 40 years because of their disobedience. Okay? So all of that is to come. Um, and so that's, that's where we start the book. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. They've been given the covenant and the law. They now have the tabernacle, which means the presence of God that's been dwelling on the mountain can now travel with them in a significant way. Okay? But um, the other things we see in here <coughs> that I think are important uh, is how this first verse reveals God. Okay? It shows us where we're at in the story, and that's significant, but we need to remember that this isn't just any old story, that this is God's story. And so here we get introduced to the author, and there's two things I want to focus on. The first is the opening words, the Lord spoke to Moses. Okay? Now, if you've read Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, those words are not terribly novel. You may even remember that the book of Genesis begins significantly after saying, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth with verse 2, Worth was at without form and void, and God was moving his spirit over the waters, and then God spoke. 
That's where the Bible begins. Let there be light, and there was light. And it continues on for after there. And we will see this phrase, as I told you, over a hundred times over the course of the book of Numbers. Here's the significance of it. The Lord that it's talking about here, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is a self-revealing God. This book isn't dictated by a bunch of religious uh, uh, innovators who go, you know what, here's what I think God is like. That's not how the story is told. In fact, the story isn't told as if these are people on some sort of journey to discover who God is and to share their findings. What we find consistently is human beings minding their own sinful business and then God suddenly speaks to them. Okay. And we see that here as well. God is a self-revealing God. He speaks, but that's not all it says. Notice what it says uh, uh, later in the text here. Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. Now, that's the second thing that we need to emphasize as we get started here tonight, is that, uh, as I mentioned, in the story, it started in Egypt, okay? God has brought them out of there, and that's the second point we need to make about this God tonight. He's not just a speaking God, he's a working God. He's a God who does things, okay? Does things on the plane of existence that we live in. Does things that interact with uh, and happen in the world as we know it. In other words, the Bible constantly maintains that we know God through both his words and his works. Okay? And we see that same significance. In fact, we find out an aspect of the character of his work here because what has he done? He has brought them out of the land of Egypt. While we were worshiping tonight, I was reflecting on the works of God. And really, if you want to take the three uh, titles that God often uses to describe his work. There's really only three of them. God does a lot of things, but categorically, here are the three. Creator, Redeemer, and Judge. Those are the three things that God does. Almost everything else falls into that category. Creator, Redeemer, and Judge. And what's emphasized here is that he's the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And if you read the first chapters of Exodus, you will see that he does that powerfully, significantly, miraculously demonstrating who he is. In fact, the story is told in such a way that it's the God of Israel versus the Egyptian pantheon. And so every plague is a mocking of the powers of the Egyptian gods. And so he's brought them out miraculously because he is a deliverer, because he is at work. And that's essential because, once again, the story is not yet over. They're about to go into new territory, not just literally, but in their relationship with God. At this point, they haven't actually fought any battles, but there are battles to come. At this point, um, they haven't actually put the covenant into practice. Okay, all of the pieces are laid, and this, in, in a, a significant way, uh, is where Israel's relationship with God begins in its final stages of beginning and takes place. And so we notice here that it says that it's the uh, first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. And so they've been living at uh, the base of Mount Sinai here for about a year and a half. And as I said, it's time for them to move on. They're fully equipped. They have everything they need. But there are some final 
camp-breaking plans that need to take place. And Lord willing, we'll cover all of them tonight. The first one is in verse 2. Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward in all Israel who are able to go to war, and you, Aaron, shall list them company by company. Okay? And so they're supposed to take a census here, but notice that the census isn't primarily or particularly about population. It's limited here to just the men, in fact, just the able-bodied men, and on top of that, the able-bodied men uh, at, who are at least 20. Okay? And we're told why at the end of verse 3, those who are able to what? To go to war. Okay? Right now, Israel is a people without an army. And as they pass through the wilderness, even before they get to the promised land, their existence will be threatened by enemy peoples. And so this is effectively a draft. A census is taken to know who the armies of Israel will be. Now, there are some very interesting exceptions to who is enlisted, if you will, that come up later in the book of Deuteronomy. For example, those who had just bought a vineyard but hadn't had a chance to enjoy it yet, or those who had just gotten engaged but were not yet married, or those who were just married and had not yet conceived of a child. All of them were removed from having to go to war, okay? Now, significantly, the rabbis say that only applied to offensive war and not defensive, okay? Which actually, I think, makes a lot of sense. Because in the defensive, you expect everybody to toe the line because it's your very existence at stake. But nonetheless, they're taking into a census to determine and define their army, okay? And so, verse 5, these are the names of the men who shall assist you from Reuben, okay? So it's going to list men from each of the 12 tribes here, and it begins with the tribe of Reuben. From Reuben, Elizur, the son of Shadur, from Simeon, Shilamiel, the son of Jeredashai, from Judah, Nashon, the son of Amminadab, from Ishakar, Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, from Zebulon, Elab, the son of Helon, from the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud, and from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, from Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideoni, from Dan, Azir, son of Amashadai, from Asher, Pegiel, the son of Akron, from Gad, Elisif, the son of Duel, from Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan. So these 12 men are selected who are to be the ones who are responsible to count their own tribes. Now, I know that sounds like a bunch of ancient and foreign names to you, but there is something that's tremendously significant about this list. Every once in a while, especially if they're not up to date on the scholarship, you will encounter people who are convinced the book of Numbers is actually written way after the dynasty of David. Okay, so not in the days of Moses, if there ever was a Moses, not even the days in the highlights of Egypt, but a thousand years later, in preparation for either the exile into Babylon or the restoration back into the land. Um, but this list creates a severe problem with that. In fact, it, uh, we can make from it a significant observation. All 12 of these men who are chosen have God-referencing names. Okay, so if you read it closely, most of them have L in the title. L is one of the names for God, and so they have names like God is my refuge. Uh, you will find uh, the word uh, Pedazur is one of the names of the sons. Ped means rock, 
okay? Uh, Rock is an ancient title for God. Uh, You will find Shaddai or Shad in some of these names. Those are all names that we find all the way back in the book of Genesis for God. Now, that's not really uncommon. Most Jewish names have some reference to God, but there's one name for God we do not find in this list of the elders of Israel, and that's Yah. Okay, now here's why that's significant. Because in the book of Exodus, God tells Moses that in times past, until the Exodus, he didn't reveal himself by the name Jehovah or Yahweh. Okay. And so when we look at these people who were delivered out of Egypt, guess what? Their names reflect a relationship with God removed from that name, meaning that these names are relatively ancient. As opposed to, for example, Joshua, one of the children who's born in the midst of the Exodus and has the name Yah in his name, okay? Yeshua, okay? Uh, so in this list, we have evidence, as there is much in the book of Numbers, of the antiquity of this book. There's another reason that's a really good one to believe, and I'll just address it now because I'm not going to mention it later. Uh, The way that the priests behave in the book of Numbers doesn't line up with the way that 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings talk about the priests behaving in the temple. In other words, it makes an incongruence between how the practice of Israel's priesthood evolved and this book that was supposedly written by those priests to underwrite, to underlay, to give a um, justification for their ministry. Okay? It, the book itself smells ancient on every page. And I just think this is a good place to show it. But nonetheless, these 12 men are chosen and they're each responsible to count their tribes. And so verse 16 These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the head of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together, who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the numbers of names, from 20 years old and upward, head by head, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations by their clans, by their father's house, according to the number of their names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Now we're going to hit some repetition. That's the format for every tribe. It's going to tell us the tribe, it's going to tell us that they covered everybody, and it's going to tell us the total, okay? Verse 22, of the people of Simeon, their generations and their clans by their father's houses, those of them who were listed, according to the numbers of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all those who were able to go to war, those listed, the tribe of Simeon, were 59,300. Of the people of Gad, uh, jump down to 25, those listed in the tribe of Gad were 45,650. Of the people of Judah, jump down to 27, those listed of the tribe of Judah were 74,600. Of the people of Issachar, their generations jumped down. Those listed of the tribe of Issachar were 54,400. Of the people of Zebulon, 57,400. Of the people of Joseph, namely Ephraim, 40,500. Of the people of Manasseh, their generations, 32,200. Of the people of Benjamin, 35,400. Verse 38. Of the people of Dan, they were 62,700. Of the people of Asher, verse uh, 41, they were 41,500. And then Naphtali, 53,400. 
And then verse 44, these are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. So all those who were listed of the people of Israel by their father's house, from 20 years old and upward, every male able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. Now, a side note, it can bother us that that's so repetitious, but one of the things that we often misunderstand about the Bible, although the Bible records a people, both Israel and the church, that were book people, okay? The church and Israel have always been people of the book. They've been devoted to scriptures. Uh, It's worth remembering that the majority of the population we're talking about is illiterate. Okay, and so their normal exposure to the book we call the Bible would have been auditory. Okay, they would have heard it read aloud. They would have heard it read aloud in the synagogues once we get to the time of Jesus. We see it being read aloud by the priests in public places during the holidays, uh, during the time of the Old Testament. In fact, even in the New Testament, Paul tells a young pastor, Timothy, that he should devote himself to literally the public reading of the scriptures. And so the reason why that's significant for all the repetition here is because the audience that's listening, unlike you, can't go back and look again. They have to get it on the right time. That's why when I preach on Sunday mornings, I use lots of repetition, whereas if I'm writing something, I don't because it's annoying, okay? And so we need to remember the significance of that, but effectively it lists the numbers of every tribes and then it gives us the total. And what it says is that there's 600 and 3,550 men. Now, you probably noticed as we were going through the numbers, they're clearly rounded figures. They're all 50s or 100s, okay? But we can do some interesting math when we put this all together. If this is what's represented just for the men over the age of 20, what's not counted? Children and women, right? Most people would say, given the average statistics of any community of people, we are talking then about Israel being about 2 million people strong. Okay. Now, that's significant, because if you were to go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 49, when Abraham, uh, his son Isaac, <coughs> his sons Jacob's, and then Jacob has 12 sons, and they become 12 tribes, okay? So after the story of Joseph, 12 tribes come into Egypt, and we're given a head count, 70. All of Israel makes up 70 people. And so what God does while they're in Egypt is effectively an incubator. It's where he fulfills the beginning of the promise that he makes to Abraham that your children will be as uh, the sand on the seashore. In fact, If you read Exodus chapter 1, you'll see that that's a significant plot point, that they're growing so fast that the Pharaoh says, we got to do something about this because they're starting to outnumber us, and that makes an uprising a serious concern, right? When you enslave an entire people, it's good to outnumber them. And so he tries to stop it by making them work harder, and if you read chapter 1, it just makes them make more babies, and so they grow even faster, okay? This is by design. This is why God has put them in Egypt, like an incubator. And so God is fulfilling the promise that he gave Abraham. A man and a barren wife has now become (coughs) a nation of two million people. Now just think with me for a second about what this would look like in the wilderness. Now side note, when you read in the Old Testament, wilderness and desert, those words are used intentionally. A wilderness is a place without 
life, animals and such. A desert is a place without water. Now, if you're reading the old King James, the terms will be reversed, but that's because in English, we used to think of a wilderness as a place without water. But in modern English, we think of a place without life, okay? So this is two million people in a place that can't usually sustain two million people. That's significant. It's part of the story, as we'll see. It's already been part of the story in the book of Exodus. So this 603,000 plus 500 and change does not include all the tribes of Israel. Now, if you go back and count, you'll find 12. And the reason you'll find 12 is because significantly, Jacob takes Joseph's two sons and gives them each an inheritance. And so we generally talk about the 12 tribes, but one of them is actually two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. But the significance of the 12 is so important in the Old Testament and the New, they never label all 12. They always leave out either Manasseh and just assume him under Ephraim, or they leave out the Levites, okay, which we'll talk about in just a second, and that's what's happened here. But it's not just to maintain the symbolism of the number 12. Okay. Here, it's because the Levites are exempted from war. This tribe isn't counted because they won't be soldiers. They do have guarding to do, but it's not going to be the same because they are to take care of the tabernacle. Verse 47, but the Levites were not listed with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses saying, only the tribe of Levi you shall not list and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel, but appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when it's to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up, and any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents uh, by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all the Lord commanded him, Moses. And so they're exempted here, but it also clarifies their position. Now, as we'll see later tonight, although you might think of the Levitical priesthood, meaning anyone who's a Levite is also a priest, that's not actually accurate. Only the descendants of Aaron, which is one particular tribe, are the priests, the ones who wear the garments and work inside the tabernacle. But the Levites as a whole, this broader family that they come from, they are all devoted to the tabernacle. And so what we'll see is the rest of the family of Levite, uh, Levites, they are to guard the tabernacle from the outside. And this isn't necessarily from invaders sneaking in in the dark to try and rob the temple. It's from clumsy Israelites who might not realize they're not uh, in, uh, in a ritual condition to be near the tabernacle. Okay? We're going to see their entire camp is set up like a holiness donut around the tabernacle so that the closest Judah tent, or the closest Gad tent, is still away from the tabernacle. So that if, for example, a member of the tribe of Dan has too much to drink and stumbles, he doesn't stumble into the tabernacle and fall into this holy place, okay, where he's not supposed to be. That's what it means here that they guard the tabernacle. But not only that, they're also the ones who take it apart, carry it, 
and set it back up as they are on the move. Okay, now we'll come back to that stuff later. Now, we know that the Levites are wrapped around the camp, but we also find here the arrangement for the rest of camp. Okay, and so the tribes are to stay together. But imagine what that would look like if you didn't actually lay it out. You've got two million people divided, uh, divided into 12 groups. The Levites, they know they're just to be around the tabernacle, but these other 12 groups, how do you keep them together? Okay, well, their positions are just laid out for us in chapter 2. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, the people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Now, I actually find that little note to be fascinating. If you're going into enemy territory, what way do you want to be seeing from your tent? Outward, right? Not for Israel. All of their tents are to face the tabernacle. Even the ones who are so far out, two million people, right? This is no Woodstock, it's much bigger. So far out that they can't actually see the tabernacle through the tents, they are to face the tabernacle. This entire camp is designed with a focal point, right? And it's the ark, it's the presence of God. But it's also a direct call to trust, okay? Because as much as the Levites might guard their tabernacle, and as much as God may call all of Israel to enlist soldiers, if God is not their defender, they're up a creek, okay? And so they have to trust the Lord. But here's how it's laid out. Verse 3, those who camp on the east side towards the sunrise shall be of their standards of the camp of Judah by their companies, the chief people of Judah. And so what we're going to see here is on all four sides, there's a chief tribe. These are the tribes that are more important. They're bigger. On the east side, it's Judah. Now that's significant because Judah is a significant tribe. Okay? It's the one that Jacob promised that a scepter will not depart from Judah until the one to whom it belongs comes. In other words, this is one of those messianic promises in the Old Testament that effectively says the coming one, the anointed one, the king, the Messiah, whatever term you want to use, it's going to come through the line of Judah. Okay? And so Judah here is at the east side. Now, why is that significant? Front door of the tabernacle. Okay? The tabernacle is always set up with the front door facing east. And so they're right there in front of the front of the tabernacle with two <coughs> side tribes. <coughs> the chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Animadad, and his company listed as 74,600. That's stuff we already know. Hey, Matt, would you get me a glass of water? Or actually, I think Richard's got it. Thank you. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, the chief of the people of Issachar being Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, his company, 54,400. <coughs> then the tribe of Zebulon, the chief people of Zebulon being Elab, his company, 57,400. All those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out on the first march. So on the east side, we have Judah, we have Ishakar, and we have Zebulon, three of the four tribes, all of them assigned, one on Judah's left, the other on Judah's right. Thank you. Now, I want to highlight here the final number, okay, 186,400. When we look at the lists that come, we move clockwise around the tabernacle, so from east 
down to south, and we see here that the primary tribe is Reuben. Okay? <coughs> now, Reuben is significant because he's the oldest son. In fact, he probably should have had Judah's place, but Reuben and Simeon and Levi are all disqualified because of their behavior. Okay? And so Judah becomes the one with preference. And so here, we nonetheless have the firstborn. And so it's Reuben. And then verse 12, those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon. And then verse 14, as well as the tribe of Gad. And their total numbers at verse 16, and all those listed the camp of Reuben and their companies were 151,450. They shall set out second. Now, we didn't notice that the first time around, but it's not just their camping orders, but also their marching orders. Okay? So the east side moves first, and then the south side moves second. If you can remember back to your summer camp days, right? This table gets to the line first, and then the second table, it's the same type of thing. There's an order, there's an organization to what's going on here. Okay, verse 18, we move around to the back of the tabernacle. On the west side shall be the standard of Ephraim, and by their companies, the chief people of Ephraim being Elishama, the son of Amahud. Okay, and so we have Ephraim, and then with Ephraim, Manasseh, his half-brother tribe, if you will, uh, as well as the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 24, all those listed in the camp of Ephraim by their companies were 108,000. They shall set out third on the march. And then finally, we have the remaining tribes beginning with Dan. Now, uh, Ephraim is significant because Joseph was the son who got the double blessing. Okay? If you go all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, you see this fight between Jacob and Esau, and it's a fight about two things, the birthright and the blessing. Okay? If you move that forward to Jacob's sons, because Reuben loses both the birthright and the blessing, the birthright goes to Judah and the blessing goes to Joseph. Okay? And so Joseph gets it split between the two tribes. And so here, uh, Ephraim is significant because he's the oldest of the two brothers. And then finally, on the north side, we have Dan. And Dan is significant because he's the first son of Jacob's second wife. Okay? And so it makes sense why they're the heads of the household. But with Dan are the final two tribes, Asher in verse 27, uh, and then in verse 29, the tribe of Naphtali. And then it says in verse 31, all those listed of the camp of Dan were 157,600, and they shall set out last, standard by standard. So we see it's very organized here, and they lay out in a square around the tabernacle in these four major quadrants focused on four major families and then two families side by side. Now I want to address something here because when I was a young Christian, I had something weird happen to me, as most young Christians do. Um, I, was, I was out learning how to talk to people about Jesus, how to evangelize, and I, it was a mentor-type relationship through a program, and so I was out with an older friend of mine, uh, and we were on a college campus, and we were just talking to students about Jesus, and one of them said, oh, I, I'm not interested, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. And oddity of oddities this older man that I was with turned to this chapter and literally started reading it just as we did to this trapped Jehovah's Witness. And I am going, what in the world are we talking about? And we got about halfway through and the guy finally said, look, I got to go to class and just escaped out the back door as any sane person would have done. And so I asked him and I said, why? Why did you turn there? What was the point? And he said, well, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus was crucified on a cross, but on a gibbet, on a pole, okay? 
And I said, okay, but what does that have to do with this chapter in Numbers? And what he pointed out was interesting to me at the time. He said, look, when you look at the numbers of, way, of the way the camp lines out, we discover on the east side the largest group, and it's the largest by quite a bit, okay? It's quite a bit bigger going out in the east. And so if, if instead of, this is what he argued, instead of a square, you imagine them in columns directly out, so not filling into the margins, but straight out from the tent, the largest would be on the east side. Then he pointed that out on, on the south and the west side, the numbers are almost equal. In fact, you can see that in verse 16. The south side is 151,000, and then uh, the uh, north side opposite of it uh, with Dan is 157,000. Okay? <clears throat> they're both smaller than Judah at 180,000, and they're almost the same. The smallest side, the only one left, uh, is the west side, which is only 108,000, significantly smaller. And so this is what he argued. He argued that Israel was intentionally laid out in the shape of a cross, okay, with the longest bar of people being out to the east, with equal crossbar parts on the north and the south, and a small head bar on the whatever's left, on the west, okay, and at the time, I went super weird. And so he turns over later in the book of Numbers when Balaam looks out over Israel and sees the whole people and he's struck profound by what he sees. Now, honestly, I think probably what he's struck by is two million people existing in the wilderness. But this was the argument he made. And he said, look, even in the Old Testament, the cross was God's design, which side note, I don't disagree with. Jesus himself, in trying to explain his crucifixion, turns to the book of Numbers to try and explain it. He just doesn't turn here. Okay. Now, just for fun, I started thinking this through, and here's one problem I would suggest with this um, overly intricate understanding of what's going on here. It is true that the east is the longest, that the west, boy, this is hard to keep track of, that the west is the shortest, and that the north and south are similar in size. But the north and south are both large enough that significantly, together, they are much longer than the other direction, okay? So think of it this way. Think of it in inches. You have one and a half inches on this side, one and a half inches on this side, and then you only have 1.8 and another one here. It's three inches across and only two and some spare up and down, okay? So it doesn't look much like that at all. It can't. It is a cross in the sense that there's people laying out in four directions, but it loses its significance when you're proportionate about it, okay? All of this to say that the Bible clearly maintains that the Old Testament is full, every page with Jesus. Jesus himself says to the religious leaders of his day who devoted themselves to the Old Testament, the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify of me. In fact, Paul, in a total head-scratcher, turns to the book of Numbers and says the rock that gives water to Israel in the wilderness, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that rock is Christ. Okay? However, there's a difference between recognizing the design uh, in the typology of the Old Testament, in the prophecy of the Old Testament, uh, in the symbolism of the Old Testament, even in the plan of the Old Testament, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and finding Jesus behind every bush. We always have to be careful of becoming mystic, ritual, where's Waldo players, 
where we're just peeling away and looking in every detail. The reason why I think there was 186,400 people to the east is because that's how many people there were in the tribe of Judah. Okay? Sometimes the Bible says what it says because it's just recording history. And it doesn't remove the significance. There's plenty of significance, but I think we should be better readers than that. Now, verse 32. These are the people of Israel... As listed by their fathers' houses, all those listed in the camps by their companies were, as we saw earlier, 603,550, but the Levites, as we saw earlier, were not listed among the people of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus did the people of Israel according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they camped by their standards and set out (coughs) each one in their clan according to their father's house. Now, let's move on to chapter 3. Now we get a genealogy for specifically the family of Aaron. Now why is that significant? What did I say earlier? Because these are the priests. Okay, Verse 1. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron. Nadab the firstborn, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithmar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to serve as priests. Okay, But... Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children, so Eleazar and Ithmar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father. So in other words, Aaron has four sons. All of his descendants were supposed to be the priesthood, two of them because of what happens in the book of Leviticus. We don't necessarily know what happens, but they get overzealous. They rush in and they offer un- uh, well, it's strange fire is how it's usually translated, but unsanctioned fire. Whatever they're doing, it's off script. Okay? In fact, because of the legislation that follows, some people believe that they are a little bit drunk uh, and that the problem is that they're on the job full of alcohol and not paying attention. But either way, they're not treating the tabernacle like the place where God's presence is, as a holy place, and so they both instantly are struck dead. They have no kids, so that's the end of Abraham's, sorry, the end of Aaron's line through his two firstborn sons. All of the priesthood then will come through his uh, third and fourth sons, Eleazar and Ithmar, okay? Now notice here, it says that uh, in verse 3, these are the names of the sons, the anointed priests whom he ordained to serve as priests. Now that's significant because later on, some people are going to call foul and go, hey, we're all a nation of priests. That's what God told us. We're all just as important as everybody else. Why do Aaron and Moses get to be the priest and the prophet? Why can't we have the job? And interestingly enough, those folks are going to be the sons of Korah, who are Levites, okay? So they're close, but they're not the same thing, and that bothers them. The only reason that's given here is clearly not because Aaron's family has their stuff together, right? Two of his sons are dead because of their misbehavior. It's just God's choice. Look, God's choice of the Levites in general is a surprising choice of grace. Remember what I told you? Jacob has three sons that come first. Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine. Not a good idea. Simeon and Levi, they kill an entire city of people to revenge their sister's rape. Okay? 
And what's, what we're told is consequence of that is neither of them will have inheritance in the land. And so later, Simeon just kind of dissipates into Judah and loses their identity, loses their portion of the land. But the Levites, God says, yeah, you don't get land because I'm going to be your portion. You're not going to have a place to live because you're going to take care of the tabernacle. Levi, the massacre, you know, the plotter, this is the guy that he chooses. The significance here is not that they are more um, internally holy or that they're more able. The significance is just God's choice. And this isn't something that you can really get around as you read the Bible, that God makes choices. Okay? And those choices aren't always easy to understand, but it's important to recognize, as we'll see here, that this protects the priesthood from some very particular things. You know what can't happen when the priests are determined by bloodline? The office can't be bought. Right? It's not some sort of backwater manipulation behind closed doors that puts people in the powerful place of the priesthood. That's important. In fact, that was a plague of the Catholic Church, was you had this incredibly powerful position in the Pope, a person who not only had religious authority, but because of the way the world had gone with the conversion of so many people to Christianity, political authority as well. And so people started to buy their way into the office. Intentionally here, God selects a single family, and that's the way it's supposed to be. It's not, by definition, making them better or even more important, but they do have a role to play. And so that's that's Aaron's descendants. And then we'll see for the rest of the Levites in verse 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting to keep guard over all the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons, and they are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And so the Levites are put on active duty outside the tabernacle to guard it, as well as to assist the priests, the lineage of Aaron, in the tabernacle. Verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Behold, I've taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. When you go back to the story of Exodus, you encounter the story of Passover when God passes over the houses where there's blood on the door and where the blood doesn't exist, which is mostly the houses of the Egyptians, all the firstborn sons die. And the text goes on to say, because I have spared your sons, all your firstborn sons will belong to me. But instead of that, he sets up this Levitical priesthood to stand in their place, to serve God on their behalf. Okay? And so um, that's what it's talking about here. Um, In fact, he explains, verse 13, For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and beast, and they shall be mine. I am the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, List the son of Levi's by father's houses and by clans. Every male from a month old and upward you shall list. So now we get a census of the Levites. Whereas we had a census of everyone but the Levites, that was about war. 
right? So everyone over 20. This one's about that exchange we just talked about, that for every firstborn son in Israel, there needs to be a representative replacement, a Levite, okay? And so everyone from a month old and up counts. Why? Because a month old is, is when you could redeem your child, okay? This was already written into the law. In fact, some rabbis taught um, that because the mortality rate was so high in the ancient world that they didn't really recognize a child, name a child, move forward until he was a month old. In fact, in some Jewish traditions today, if a child dies before he reaches a month, they don't have the same mourning process that most Jews would go through. It's a different process, okay? Um, but nonetheless, a month old, this is where the count begins. All of the Levites, verse 16, so Moses listed them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded, and these were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon and Koath and Merai, and these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their clans, Libni and Shimei. These are the sons of Koath by their clans, Amram and Izar, Hebram and Uziel, and these are the sons of Merai by their clans, Mahil and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites by their father's household. Okay, now as it goes deeper, did you see what it did there? So it removes Aaron's family, and then it says, with the Levites, here are the main sons of Levi, and then here are their sons. So we're to the grandson level. Now it's going to go back through the grandson level, uh, or the son level, excuse me, and it's going to give them tasks. It's going to divvy up the work, okay? There's a division of labor. We know that they're to guard. Here we find out, um, here we find out what, what is their responsibility to move in the tabernacle. Verse 21. To Gershon belonged the clans of the Libanites, the clans of the Shimeites. These were the clans of the Gershonites. Their listing, according to the number of all the males a month old and up, was 7,500. The clans of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle on the west. Okay, remember with Dan. With Elisaph, the son of Lael, is the chief of father's house of the Gershonites. And the guard duty of the son of Gershon in the tent of meeting involved the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the door of the court that's around the tabernacle and the altar, its cords, and all the service connected with these. So these tribes carry all the curtains with a few exceptions. They're the curtain guys. Okay. When Israel unpacks, they are the ones uh, who remove all the curtains and carry them to the next de destination. Then we have Koath, verse 27. Koath belonged the clan of the Amorites, the clan of the Ezerites, and the clan of the Hebronites, the clan of the Uzielites, and the clans of the Koalites. Now let me give you a breather here because I know once again we're reading a bunch of names of people who are no longer alive and you have no connection to. Remember that Israel does. Remember that the people of Israel reading this hundreds of years later see their ancestors in this list and therefore know their job description. Okay? These definitions are passed on generation to generation to generation and determine these roles. Okay? Now, that changes when the temple is built because then it has a permanent place. But up to that point, these roles are maintained. Verse 28, according to the number of all the males from a month old and up, there were 8,600 keeping guard over the sanctuary. The clans of the sons of Koath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle with Eliphan, the son of Uziel, as the chief of the father's house, the clan of the Kohathites. And their guard duty involved the ark, the table of the lampstand, the altars, the vessel of the sanctuary, which the priest minister, and the screen, all the service connected with these. Okay, so they get the most important pieces 
the furniture that goes into the holy of holies. And when it mentions the screen here, that's the curtain that divides the holy place from the holy of holies. That's what they're responsible to carry. Okay. Verse 33, to Merai belong the clans of the Malites and the clans of the Mushites. These are the clans of Merai. They're listing according to number all the males from a month old and upwards was 6,200. And the chief of the father's house of the clans of Merai was Zeriel, the son of Abiel. And they were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle and appointed the guard duty of the sons of Merai involved the framing of the tabernacle, the bars, the pillars, and the bases, and all their accessories, all the service connected with these, also the pillars around the court with their bases and pegs and cords. So all the curtains that made up the walls of the tabernacle are hung on bases and poles and crossbars. All of those things these tribes are responsible for. Verse 38, those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east before the tent of the meeting towards sunrise were Moses and Aaron, okay, the priests. They're on Judah's side, the front door, um, and their job is guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel, and any outsider who came near was to be put to death, as it's been repeated now three times. And those listed among the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron listed at the commandment of the Lord by clans, all the males from a month old and upward, were 22,000. Okay? And so just to give you the picture again, what we have in Israel is them camping in a square around the tabernacle, and now we know what tribes are on each side. We also know how the Levites are divided on each side in the center. Okay? Now, we have a problem here. The problem is that there's a total of 22,000 Levites, but that number has to align with the firstborn of all the tribes of Israel. And as we see in verse 40, they do not. And the Lord said to Moses, list all the firstborn males of the people of Israel from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names, and you shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. <coughs> and the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. <coughs> so not only did the firstborn sons have to be redeemed, but also the firstborn of their livestock. And what he says here is, take all the firstborn of every one of your cows, every one of your sheep. It says cattle here, but the word is broader than that. Every one of your goats, and they all go to the Levites. Okay? If you were wondering, what do the non-priests do all the time? It sounds like they're just slackers living off the nation. No, they're farmers, like everyone else is. They're shepherds. And so they're given this crop uh, to invest uh, in them. And then it continues... Uh, Verse 42, Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded him, and all the firstborn males, according to the number of names from a month old and upwards, as listed, were 22,273. Notice that unlike all the other names we've read, that one is explicit and specific. Okay, it's not rounded. And notice also that it's 273 off from the number of the Levites. Okay, that's the problem that's being dealt with. Every firstborn son needs to be redeemed. A Levite replaces each one in service to the Lord. But what about the excess of 273? Verse 44, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 geras, and give the money to Aaron and his sons as redemption price for those who are over. Okay, so the excess has to be redeemed financially, five shekels apiece, which in the ancient world is the price of a slave, 
okay? Remember, the Levites are given over as devoted servants to the Lord directly, okay? And so they have to buy their sons back. Now, which one? Which get to be the last 273? Most likely, although we're not told here, they draw lots, okay? And so they're just randomly determining which ones have to pay the redemption price, but it's balanced out. So, verse 49, Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the people of Israel, he took the money, 1,365 shekels, by the shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons, according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. And so this also begins a process of the other tribes supporting the Levites, okay, with their livestock as well as with their Finances, And this continues in a bunch of other ways. Some of the regular financial offerings that Israel makes sustain the Levites. Some of the sacrifices they make actually go to feed the priests and the Levites. Okay, they're serving on behalf of all Israel. And so there's a give and take here. Chapter 4. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Koath from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their fathers' houses. So I told you there were two censuses in Numbers. Technically, there's a lot more than that. There's the big one that we saw in the first chapter, and that's the one that will be repeated later on. But now we have another of the Levites. Didn't we just do this head count? How much time has passed between chapters? Okay. But notice this one is different. Whereas the last one was every Levite over the age of one month, this one is, verse 3, from 30 years old up to 50 years old all who can come on duty to do the work in the tent of meeting. Okay, so these are the men who were drafted into full-time ministry. Okay, these are the ones who are actually on active duty. They can't serve until they're 30, and they only serve until they're 50. Okay, this is the window for service. And so the number is taken here in verse 4. This is the service of the sons of Koath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Okay, so as it goes to the census, family by family, it's also going to tell us how they are to take apart the tabernacle. And I want you to notice the first step. It's not the Koathites who go into the holy of holies. It's not the Kohathites who drape the veil over the, the, uh, the, um, the Ark of the Covenant here. It's Aaron, the high priest, and his priesthood. It's his sons. Okay? Why? Because nobody is allowed to see the Ark. The only ones who have holiness clearance for that is, is Aaron himself. And so even these priests, these sons who would do it, most likely they would take the curtain off of its rungs, they would walk forward, and they d- would drape it over the ark. Okay? Even when Aaron goes in, one day a year, he has to go in with so much incense that he can barely see the ark in front of him, quote, lest he die. Okay? And so before they can even carry the ark away, it has to be wrapped and covered. And so it's covered by the veil, the same thing that separates all of Israel from the ark visibly, okay, this curtain. Um, verse 6, then they shall put, it on, put on a covering of goat skin and pre- spread on top of that a cloth of all blue and shall put it in its poles. So then they put a weatherproof layer, goat skin over that, and then on top of that is a blue layer. We're going to see that's unique, okay? Everything else is going to be goat skin on the outside, but if you're looking at the furniture of Israel while it's on the move, you know the ark because it's bright blue, okay? The outside fabric can't be mistaken, Uh, Verse 7, 
Over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put on its plates and dishes for incense and the bowls and flagons for the drink offering. The regular showbread shall also be on it. So they take the bread of the presence where these 12 representative loaves, one for each nation of Israel, are put out fresh every week and presented before the Lord and then eaten by the priests when they're replaced. Okay. All of the bread is still on the table. All of the utensils that go along with that are lumped on the table. And then it's wrapped in a covering. Remember, once again, this is the sons of Aaron doing this. They shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet, um, verse 8, uh, and cover the same with a covering of goatskin and shall put in its poles. And so unlike, unlike the ark, this one on the inside has a beautiful covering and then it's wrapped in the weatherproof outside. Okay. Uh, verse 9, they shall take the cloth of blue and cover the lampstand for the light with its lamps, its tongs and trays and all the vessels of oil which supplied. And they'll put it with all the utensils and a covering of goatskin and put on the carrying frame. And over the golden altar, they shall spread a cloth of blue. This is the altar of incense and cover it with a covering of goatskin and shall put in its poles. And they shall take all the vessels of service that are used in the sanctuary, put them in the cloth of blue, cover them with a goatskin, and put them on a carrying frame. And they shall take away the ashes from the altar. So now we've moved out of the holy place, and we've moved into the front door of the tabernacle. There's two pieces of furniture out here, the altar for sacrifice and the bronze laver. Okay? Both of them, unlike all the other furniture, aren't covered in gold, but are covered in or are made of bronze. And so we'll notice here their covering's a little bit different. And so here they're covered, um, verse uh, 13, they shall take away the ashes from the altar, spread purple cloth over it. So whereas the ones on the inside were scarlet, these ones are purple. Now interestingly enough, if you go back and read about the tabernacle, the curtains inside the holy place are scarlet, and the curtains in the tabernacle's inner layer are purple. Okay, and so there's a gradation in color, there's a gradation in covering, there's a significance in this that moves from the most holy things out to the more less holy things, if you will. Gold, uh, solid gold with the ark, to gold-covered wood, to bronze, most beautiful and intricate curtains in the most valuable color, to slightly valuable, to less, and then on the outside of the tabernacle, the whole thing's wrapped in the goatskin. Even when you look at the fastenings, just the things that hold the curtains in place, gold in the holy place, silver or in the holy of holies, silver out here, uh, and then just bronze out in the court. Okay, there's this gradation. All of it points to the significance of the holiness of this furniture, and so they prep all of these things. Um, and uh, verse 15, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, then the sons of Korah shall come in to carry these things, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Koath are to carry. And so most of the big furniture has these long wooden poles. That's the only part they're allowed to touch. They don't see any of it. It's all wrapped away. It's all covered. That's all done by the priests, but that's what they're to carry. And then we have another family in verse 16. Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, uh, shall have charge of the oil for the light, the fragrant incense, uh, incense, the regular grain offering, the anointing oil, with the oversight of the whole tabernacle and the vessel that's in it of the sanctuary and its vessels. Now let's pause again and ask this question. Why divvy up the work at all? Okay, now, clearly, you might feel that you're, it's cool to be the guy who carries the ark. But I think we're forgetting the significance of these things. At best, 
if they're not afraid, it's because they've become too familiar and they should be. Okay? It's, it, it's not merely an honor. It's a danger. There's a reality because God is so present in the place of Israel. These things are a lot like we would uh, hear if we were to study how people went through their process of work at Hanford, right, at the nuclear site. There's a significance to these things that we sometimes miss. But why can't they just divvy up and grab things and go? Do not forget that when they get to place B and assemble the tabernacle, this is so essential to the existence of Israel as God in their midst, there can't be any pieces missing. There can't be anything unaccounted for. In fact, we'll find when they get to the bases, nobody gets to carry two bases. One base per man. So all are accounted for. Okay, This is rigid and, uh, and serious because the tabernacle is so significant. Okay? So, verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them to each task and to his burden, but they shall not go in and look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. The lords of Moses spoke, say, Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take a census of the sons of Gershon, verse 22, also by their father's houses and by their clans from 30 years old up to 50 years old. You'll list them, all who can come to do duty and service in the tent of meeting. And this is their service of the clan of Gershonites in serving and bearing burdens. They will carry the curtains of the tabernacle. Now, we already know this, but here it's being delineated in the order it would happen. Okay, so furniture goes first, then the curtains, and then the stuff the curtains are held up on, which makes perfect sense. And part of the reason it's delineated here is because effectively you have a written instruction manual. You're training up the new guy, you open up to numbers and go, okay, here's how this works, right? And so we find that the Gershonites uh, are to dismantle all of the curtains uh, and take them with them. Um, And so then finally in verse 29... As for the sons of Merai, you'll list them by their clans of fathers' houses from 30 years old up to 50 years old. You'll list them, everyone who can come on duty to do the service of the tent of meeting. And this is what they're charged to carry. The whole of their service in the tent of meeting is the frames of the tabernacle with its bars, pillars, and bases. And the pillars around the court with their bases, pegs, and cords, with all the equipment and all their accessories. And you shall list them by name the objects that they're required to carry. This is the service of the clans of the sons of Merai. The whole of their service in the tent of meeting under the direction of Ithmar the son of Aaron the priest (coughs) and Moses and Aaron and the chiefs of the congregation listed the sons of the Kohathites by their clan and by their father's house (coughs) from 30 years old up to 50 years old everyone who could come on duty for the service of the tent of meeting and those listed were 2,750 This was the list of the clan of Kohathites, all those who served in the tent of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron listed according to the commandment of the Lord. Those listed of Gershon, verse 40, were 2,630. Verse 44, those listed in these clans um, of Merai were 3,200. And then finally in 46, all those who were listed of the Levites whom Moses and Aaron and the chiefs of Israel listed by their clans in their father's house from 30 years to 50 years old. Everyone who had come to do the service of ministry and the service of bearing burdens in the tent of meeting were 8,580. According to the commandment of the Lord, throughout Moses, through Moses they were listed, each one with his task of serving or caring. Thus they were listed by him as the Lord commanded Moses. 
Now, I don't want to finish there tonight, which is fine. We've got more time. Um, But I want to push on to chapter 5. So we have how they are to leave. We have an enlisted enlisted set of soldiers. We have an army. Um, But there also needs to be a revisiting, now that the camp is really going to function, of how the clean and unclean laws work. Now, we covered this back in Leviticus, but here it just deals with three particular areas, okay? It deals with three kind of iconic, unclean uh, categories that are going to come up all the time and what you're to do while you're on the road. Uh, It's going to deal with restitution, okay, which is something we covered even as its own sacrifice, that if you take advantage of your neighbor in Israel, you need to not just return what you took advantage of, but also offer a sacrifice of restitution and give the person you took advantage of an extra 20%. But as we'll see, a question comes up. Now that they're moving on, there's the law in principle, but how does it work out if the guy you stole from is dead? Okay, so we'll see that. And the final one has to do with adultery. And I think the reason why these ones make the list Um, is because of (coughs) the commonality of their reality. Almost everyone is slightly modifying what we already know, dealing with the broader circumstances of life. But let's jump in in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. Three categories here. The word here for leprous speaks of skin diseases, probably not what we know of as Hansen's disease today, what we would modern day call leprosy, but a, a, a skin disease. So they're to stay outside the camp, and then those who have some form of a discharge, um, like some sort of communicable diseases, uh, and then finally anyone who encounters the dead. Remember that in Israel, uh, there's a couple of categorical statuses that are richly, ritually significant, okay? And they're always a contrast. So there's holy and there's profane. Now, a lot of times when we use the word profane today, that's negative. In, in Israel, it's effectively neutral, okay? Profane as in sacred and secular might be a way to put it. Then another divide is between clean and unclean. And those two categories stand next to each other and overlap. So you can be profane or secular and clean, but you can also be profane and unclean. Okay? But you cannot be holy and unclean. Okay? In fact, you can't even encounter some of the holy things like a sacrifice or come into the first area of the tabernacle if you're in the unclean status. Now, as we talked about in the book of Leviticus, the significance of these things is effectively a divine object lesson. Israel is constantly having to be aware of what it looks like to live with God. And it's put in all of these visible, tangible realities. If you were living in the tents of Israel on this journey, every day you would be looking at things on the menu and going, okay, can I eat this? Is it clean or unclean? You would be looking at things you encounter and going, okay, am I contagious in this ritual sense? Do I need to go and wash myself? Um, You would be recognizing all these things, and all of them are significant primarily because they go against the grain of God and the world as he designed it, okay? And so discharges are like a living death. Death is obviously death. Uh, and leprosy is, it looks a lot like death, okay? It all is aspects of the fall that go against creation. And so 
they are outside the camp. Even when you look at the food laws of Israel, they seem to be differentiated between stuff that makes sense and stuff that doesn't fit. Okay? So like a platypus has no chance. What do you do with a platypus? But even when you look at the fish laws, they need to have scales and fins. Why? Because most things that swim in the sea have scales and fins. But if you're an eel, you don't fit, right? And so it points to creation and God's goodness and life. And what they're learning in these things does translate for us today. The New Testament talks about uncleanness a lot, but it removes the object lesson and keeps the reality. Okay? These are external object lessons about internal problems. Okay? That's why in the book of Ezekiel, God says, hey, dig a hole. Dig a hole into the temple and look what you find. And he looks into the temple and he sees all of these unclean things just taking up residence in the temple and all of the priests don't seem to know. And he says, this is the heart of your priesthood. It's unclean on the inside. Jesus says the same thing. He says, look, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but out of the heart flows all sorts of wickedness. That's where the source is. That's the problem. And so unclean in the New Testament sets aside the object lesson because Jesus has come and because we can really do something about the internal problem now through the cleansing of the Spirit and focuses on those things. Okay? So they're still significant for us, even though they're hard to understand. Now, why these three? All three of these require the greatest version of separation. So there's lots of things that happen normally, like menstruation, uh, that just remove you during the period where it's going on, uh, or an emission of semen, or something like that. Uh, There's many things where you just wash yourself at the end of the day, and then you're back in the status of clean. All of these require a week, okay? Uh, Now, here's, here's what's significant about these three. Once again... It's a discharge that renders you unclean. It's leprosy and skin disease, and it's touching the dead. What changes between the Old and the New Testament? Jesus, obviously. But it's significant that we find Jesus, who always did the things that pleased the Father, who was holy as holy gets, inside and out, interacting with all of these camps. So in Mark chapter 1, A leper comes and falls at his feet, and he says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out and touches him, a leper, and says, I'm willing, be clean. On another occasion in the Gospel of Luke, there's a funeral procession for a woman in the city of Nain. And now she's a widow because her only son has died. She's left to destitution. There's no one to take care of her. Jesus walks up to the ancient world equivalent of a casket, and reaches inside and touches this dead boy, and he comes back to life. He touches him. When Jesus is on the way to help a man whose daughter is dying, suddenly he stops, and he says, wait a minute, someone touched me. And the disciples go, it's a busy street, Jesus. Everybody's brushing up against everybody. What's the big deal? And he says, no, I felt my power go out from me. Someone touched me. And this woman comes forward and fearfully she says, I've had a discharge of blood for years and years and nobody could do anything about it, but now I've been healed. He encounters this woman who never should have been in a public place. If you're in unclean status, you don't wear your hair up, you wear it down, and as you walk through the streets, you yell unclean. For her to even be on that street is sacrilegious. For her to touch Jesus is a serious offense. 
Why does Jesus draw attention to it? To humiliate her? No, it's so that people will know she's now clean, to restore her status, enter her back into the community. Okay? Jesus significantly goes against the grain of holiness laws because his holiness goes against the grain of how it usually works. He's so clean, he makes unclean things clean. Okay? That's why when Peter is having this dream about all of these foods he's not supposed to eat, and he hears that voice say, why is Peter, you know, eat, kill and eat? And he says, I'm not supposed to touch anything unclean. And he says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. That dream's not about animals. It is about animals, but it's not really about animals. Who shows up at his door? As soon as he awakes from the dream, a Gentile, the unclean ones, the ones who don't keep the kosher laws. But Jesus has done something so significant that those things are rendered irrelevant, not, not because for any reason except they've served their purpose because what Jesus really cleanses is hearts, okay? So we have these three listed here, um, but they're all to be put outside the camp, and Israel obeys and does so and puts them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. Now you could look at this and think contagion, Right? If you've handled a dead body recently, let's just quarantine you a little bit. If you've got a contagious disease or a contagious discharge, an STD, let's quarantine you. It's more than that. It has to do with God's holiness. But let's move on. Verse 5. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that the people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt. Now notice here, as we'll see, this is talking about them taking advantage of one another stealing or charging too much, using false weights. Somehow they are extorting another person. But notice how it's labeled here that they have broken faith with the Lord. Okay? Now that's significant because we like to keep these separate. We have love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says that's one of the great commandments and the other is love your neighbor as yourself. But it's amazing how often these are interwoven. And so John says, how can you argue that you love the God who you do not see when you do not love your brother who you see every day? Okay. When in Galatians, Paul is talking about uh, this is the one thing that God commands of us, this is the one thing that he expects of us, he goes the love your neighbor route. Why? Because you really never get to phase two unless you've done phase one. Okay. They're interwoven, they're holistic. And so here we need to recognize that when we take advantage of somebody made in the image of God, that's not just an offense against them. It's offense against the God who made them. It's an offense against the God who has given you sufficiently for your life that you've profaned, blasphemed by saying, no, it's not enough, I want more. Okay? And so there's a vertical aspect to this crime. So verse 7, he shall confess the sin that he has committed. Okay, now we missed a part that's important. It says, when that person realizes his guilt, the word there isn't realize like, oh, I had no idea I just stole that woman's purse. It's realizes in, oh, that was not something I should have done. Okay, they feel guilty. Now what? They know they've broken God's law. They know they've taken advantage of another person. How do they set things right? Okay, there's an app for that. You can read it about in Leviticus. And so he confesses the sin, he makes a sacrifice, he makes restitution. Verse 10, he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, 20%, and giving it to him who he did the wrong. But if the man has next of no kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest 
in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made of him. And so what it says is, well, if the guy is dead, then it goes to his closest living relative. But if that line is shut down, then it's given to the priest along with the meat leftovers of his atonement sacrifice. Okay? Now, why does this matter? Two reasons. One, because it shuts down the conveniently waiting for someone to die before you fess up to the bad thing you did. Right? And let's recognize there's a psychological significance in that because sometimes what makes us feel bad is when we hear someone is dying. That always brings us back to restore things. Can you understand the temptation here that would say, well, if I just wait a little bit longer, then I can confess and say, I would have said it right, but what can I do now, right? No, restitution must be paid. Repentance has a cost, okay? And on top of that, the positive is the despair that comes, and some of us know this personally, where a broken relationship remains broken and then it's severed permanently through death. How do we set things right then? What do we do? As, as much as we might think that pay it forward can cover our sins, we know better. We can't right a wrong by doing another right. No matter how great that right is, it doesn't erase the wrong. But the Le- uh, Levitical sacrificial system had a process for that. But when we take advantage of somebody, there's always to be restitution. And this is something, by the way, that's repeated in the New Testament. Jesus says, when you come to the altar with your sacrifice and you realize that someone has something against you, go and make right with them first and then bring your sacrifice. Okay? And so there needs to be restitution, but even if it's not a living relative, then it needs to be paid to the priest. It still needs to go through. Verse 9, every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel which they bring to the priest shall be his Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. So some things are given to all the Levites. Some things are given to all the priests to share. And some things are given to whoever's handling that particular sacrifice. It's just reiterating that for us. The last thing we have in chapter 5 is one of the most interesting things in the book of Numbers. In fact, it is totally unique to the Old Testament law. Okay, This is the only place in the Old Testament where a Uh, a law is given that involves God's direct involvement for discernment. And here's the setup. What if there's been infidelity in a marriage, but nobody saw it? What if there's only suspicions of adultery? Okay. Now, according to the book of Exodus, the legal consequence of adultery caught red-handed is death. Both of them are to be put to death. But what if there's only suspicions? Now, remember once again that that matters. Because if there's not something to deal with those suspicions, suspicions can ruin a marriage just as well as the the fact of it. We also need to remember that the society that, that makes up Israel inherently puts men in a position of power. In fact, to the degree that we read this and we naturally assume that this is somehow bad for women. I would argue, and I'll prove it tonight, that it's exactly the opposite. That this is just as much for the women's sake as it is to deal with the seriousness of sexual sin. So look at what we're talking about, verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband and she's undetected, though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act, and if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who's defiled herself, or... 
if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself. Okay? That's important. This is for discerning what's happened. It's not just a process of guilt. It's not some sort of uh, mock trial to just bring about consequence. Okay? It's to deal with this thing. And so what does it say? Verse 15, the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley of flour. Now notice who brings the cost of the offering there. That's the first thing that I want you to notice is significant. It's the woman who's on trial, but it's her husband who pays for the offering. He has to bring the barley. Okay? So he, this, is, this is actually a very big problem in our modern court system, right? Some people can't afford, even when they're innocent, to go to court because of the cost of court, right? That's handled right up front. The, the cost of this whole ritual, the accuser bears, okay? Second, let's keep reading. Uh, so he shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it's a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance, okay? And so it doesn't have joy, uh, the normal accoutrements of a grain offering because it's not a grain offering of worship. It's something different. So no oil, no frankincense, verse 16. The priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. So he takes a little bit of dust from within the holy place, and he adds it to water from the bronze laver that's set aside, and he mixes it together in this earthen vessel. Um, verse 18, the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hand the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in the hand of the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, if no man has lain with you, and if you've not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you've gone astray, though you were under your husband's authority, and if you've defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away, and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Okay, amen means I agree or true. And it's, when it's said together like that, amen and amen, it's a pretty serious proclamation, which is striking because that's how Jesus likes to say it. And so when he says in English, truly, truly, I say to you, what he literally says in, in the original is not even a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word, amen, amen. Okay, amen, amen, I say to you. And so what happens here? He lays out the whole thing and he says, this will have no effect on you if you haven't done anything wrong. If it does, and what it says is your body will swell and your thigh fall away. Okay, thigh is probably an idiom there for genitalia and the body swelling for the womb. And so, in other words, it's, it's a crime fits the punishment type scenario. And as we'll see, it's infertility. Okay, that's what we're talking about. She will be barren. Um, and so... These things are said, and then she agrees to it. Now, once again, psychologically, think of what's going on here. As she goes through this process, if there's some sort of sin there, she has to decide if she wants to declare it at the tabernacle, in front of the priest, before the altar of God, with an oath. Okay, it's a very serious thing. Verse 23, the priest shall write these curses in a book, 
and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and wave it before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering, it's a memorial portion, and burn it on the altar, and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when she's, he's made her drink the water, then, if she's defiled herself and broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain, and her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if she, the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she shall be free and shall conceive children. Now, a side note. Practices like this are pretty common in the ancient Near East. Okay. Think of the ridiculous witch trials that we heard about when we were kids, where they would try and drown a witch, and if the witch survived, she's a witch, and if she drowned, we made a mistake. Right? There were similar things in the ancient world, ritual tests like this, and so for adultery, we even find similar things, but usually it was, we'll throw you in a lake, and if you don't drown, then you're probably innocent. Okay. This is different. We even know of ones where the person caught in the, or not caught in the act, but suspected of, had to do crazy things like stick their arm in boiling water or grasp a fiery hot poker. And if they were burned, then they were clearly guilty. Really? Okay. Do you understand the difference between that and this? This assumes innocence. Right? It doesn't say, if you're truly innocent, God will protect you. It says, only if you're guilty will this curse you. That's significant. It's important. The orientation is completely different. In fact, notice that the punishment here is not carried out by the priest or by the husband or by the people at all. It's left totally in the hands of God. The rabbis like to say that this is the only law in the Old Testament that requires a miracle. Right? God has to directly interfere. But I also want you to notice, for the sake of the woman... If nothing happens, she's declared innocent. Now that's important in the ancient world because a woman who's divorced by her husband is like a widow, destitute. Her, her safety is built around her reputation. If she's suspected of being an adulteress, then she's in a dangerous place. And so this isn't just about her guilt, it's also about her innocence. Okay, And that's important. And so... Um, so the last thing I want to mention here is that the punishment is different than somebody who's caught red-handed in adultery, okay, which goes for men as well as for women, uh, which is death. That sentence, even if she suddenly can't have kids, they don't go, aha, I knew you cheated on me, drag you to the courts and put you to death. Why? Because there's no eyewitnesses. Okay? This thing is in private and therefore between the woman and the Lord. Now, I understand a thousand ways that this could bother us as moderns, but when we put it in its circumstances and we recognize what life was like in Israel, like I said, um, this is, A, significantly different. Significantly different than how things like this were done in the ancient world and significantly different than how women were treated in the ancient world. Okay? Women in the ancient world could be divorced for any reason, not in Israel. There had to be some form of sexual impurity. They had to have, uh, have done something uh, that, was, that was wrong. In fact, some scholars believe that divorce went both ways in ancient Israel. And definitely in practice, 
pretty later or a bit later in history, that's how it was carried out. Okay, but even here, there is ways for the woman to be protected from the abuse of her husband. In fact, if you study divorce in the Old Testament, you will see that God primarily sees it as a crime men commit against women. Not in law, like I said, the law it might go different ways, but in practice, the complaint he makes about Israel is that they have been sinning against women by divorcing them, okay? Um, and then I think the last thing that I should mention here is just, just the fact that um, we tend to associate crime and punishment only if we get caught. That's how we think of things, okay? And so if I got away from it, it's, it's no big deal. And we've seen two versions of that now. We've seen the guy who suddenly feels guilty and he initiates and takes advantage and then we find this category of suspicion. And I just want to remind you of what Jesus said. He said that the secrets we have will be shouted from the rooftops, okay? That everything's in the dark, uh, that happens in the dark will be made known in the light, the incredible thing is that whatever we have going on in our life, hidden or known, is not too big for God to forgive. It's not something that can't be dealt with, but don't fool yourself in thinking that you get away with it. And that's as true of the husband here as it is the wife. We may not like the fact that the, that the Old Testament um, makes the husband or the father the authority figure, but we always have to remember that God holds all authorities accountable. And all authority comes with the possibility of abuse, but none of it comes with the possibility of getting away with it because God will be just, okay? Verse 29, this is the law in the case of the jealous, uh, in case of jealousy when a wife though under her husband's authority goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over the man and he's jealous of his wife. Then he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out for all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. Which basically just means free to remarry. Um, so, there's, this is all of the preemptive things that need to be dealt with before Israel can break camp. The only thing left uh, we'll see is, is a new vow, the Nazarite vow, uh, and some offerings, and then we're going to see Israel set out for the first time, which we will do next week. Um, let me pray for us, and we'll go. God, for many of us, in attempting to read our Bible cover to cover, if we survive Leviticus, we despair in numbers. But we want to recognize tonight, Lord, that these things don't always seem relevant to us, but they're significant because they're laying the foundation of so much that is to come. And uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, over the course of this journey through, through the rest of November into December, uh, probably we'll be in numbers all the way until almost the end of January, uh, I ask that you would give us an understanding of this book an appreciation of this book, and that you would help us to apply it to our lives, knowing, uh, as Paul tells Timothy, that all scripture is divinely inspired and profitable, which means it has something to say to us, even if because of its differences and antiquity, we have to listen a little harder. Help us to have ears to hear. We pray this in your name. Amen.
Amen. Have a good night.